Welcome to the newest episode of the RevDem podcast. My name is Ferenc Lotto, and today I'm co-hosting our conversation with Daniel Steinmetz-Jenkins, who is my fellow section head of the History of Ideas component of the Review of Democracy. Hello, Danny. Welcome, and great to have you participate. Great to be here. Thanks for letting me. Uh, it is our pleasure to host uh, Martin Conway today. Welcome to the Review of Democracy, Professor Conway. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Professor Conway requires no introduction to those uh, interested in the history of Europe in the 20th century. Uh, Martin Conway is professor of modern European history at the University of Oxford. Uh, his major works uh, include uh, The Sorrows of Belgium, Liberation and Political Reconstruction, 1944-1947, uh, and the volume Europe's post-war periods, 1989-1945-1918, writing history backwards, which Professor Conway has co-edited with Peter Lagru and Henri Rousseau. Uh, Martin Conway has also published on a host of uh, further uh, issues such as political legitimacy, Europeanization, and Catholic uh, politics, among others. Uh, Professor Conway's most recent book, uh, released uh, just last year, is titled uh, Western Europe's Democratic Age, 1945 to 1968. It is a major monograph drawing on decades of research and reflection, and we are here today to discuss some of the key arguments uh, presented uh, in this book. So let me perhaps begin at the very end of your book, if I, if I may. Uh, you conclude uh, Western Europe's democratic age by stating that democracy and its history have been rather elusive subjects, and that you actually treat democracy as a means of understanding a wider history. Now, why do you consider democracy such an elusive subject? And what is this wider history that you are trying to grasp? And with those questions, I'm trying to also ask you a bit to characterize your approach to the subject. Yeah, that's, those are good questions. Elusive risks sounding a little out of date. You know, I think when I first got interested in democracy a little while ago, I was very conscious of the absence of work on democracy as a political form in 20th century Europe, at which point it seemed to me that almost everybody uh, started getting interested in it. And we've had a whole series of books uh, by, by uh, all sorts of people working on Germany, France, and so on uh, since that have kind of historicized democracy. Uh, but I did start from the assumption that there was too much of a starting point in so much of the writing about democracy, that it was the end point of Europe's modern development, and therefore that it was a kind of ineluctable uh, ineluctably the place where European history would end up. And therefore, as a consequence of that assumption of inevitability, there wasn't any adequate historicization of it. And I suppose in this respect, I think particularly of Jeff Ely's book, Forging Democracy, which presents a narrative of democracy since the French Revolution, essentially of democracy getting larger and bigger and broader and so on. And there's plenty that's excellent about that. But I'm rather worried about the idea of it being a single span of democracy from the French Revolution to the present day. And I wanted to historicize it, as I have done in some of my other writings on democracy, as a series of almost jump cuts, if you think of cinema, you know, between different models of democracy that have existed at different stages in Europe's modern development. As for the larger question, well, 
larger question, I suppose, goes back to what we all struggle with when teaching um, outline courses about 20th century Europe. And if I wanted to give a completely unglamorous title to an outline course on 20th century Europe, it would be the struggle for stable forms of managed participatory pluralism, which clearly wouldn't work alongside titles like Age of Extremes or Age of Fascism or something. But that sort of formula, slightly obtuse, obscure in some ways, that there's a series of roads or paths that lead in different ways towards stable forms of managed, participatory, plural political regimes in 20th century Europe seems to be the larger question that, I, that I'm addressing. And I, in constructing such a title, I'm trying to avoid using the word democracy because it seems to me that democracy might just be one of those projects. Wonderful. Um, just a little follow-up question here. Um, you know, the book tries to conceptualize how uh, Western Europe became democratic after the war. And you show that this was, of course, a gradual process with, with multiple actors. And that democracy uh, was a result of complex interactions between political institutions and members of society. And what came about in Western Europe was a democracy, not of direct popular sovereignty, I think you argue, but of representation and intermediaries. Um, can you explain what you, you mean by these striking formulations? I'm also interested in why you start the book off talking about Ram and Aron, because it seems as though the French sociologist and uh, public intellectual um, major Cold War figure, it seems as though his own thinking about democracy in some ways uh, symbolizes the argument of the book up, up in terms of what you think about the formation of democracy. And maybe you can you know, tie those two together. Yeah, certainly. And those are good points uh, that I need to reflect on. I suppose Aron is there because I find him rather sort of <laughs> interesting in a slightly um, odd way, but also because he seems to me to symbolize the extent to which democracy was not built by Democrats. Mm. Many features of Aron's political ideology, but if he ends up in democracy after the Second World War, that's probably a reflection of the extent to which democracy was built by a, a cohort of rather disabused people, intellectuals and technocrats and politicians who had probably been through other houses, shall we say, on their way towards democracy. Aron's own background in the 1930s, he was very interested in new order ideas and so on. Of course, he was in London during the war. But, you know, if he arrives as a Democrat, a very anti-communist Democrat in the post-war years, it's a reflection of how he's been disappointed by other options. And I think that that sense of building democracy, of democracy not being built by convinced Democrats, but by people who had come to a pragmatic acceptance of democracy as being better than its alternatives, and democracy being better than its own history. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really quite important because most of these people had some sense of how democracy had not been successful, either in the immediate past think of the Weimar Republic, think of French Third Republic France, or indeed over a longer span, you know, going back to 1848 or 1789, these were, you know, perhaps in some respects glorious reference points, but they're not really very, you know, you know, very happy ones for people who want to advocate the, the success of democracy. So instead, 
it's this a democracy built after 1945 that is built against those models and therefore particularly against the ideal of direct popular sovereignty because that was seen as where the problem stemmed from in many ways that's where the passions were produced that's where uh politics uh, democracy tended to go off the road and become the game of various populists and so on i don't agree with all these terms yeah but this is the worldview of a certain sort of post-1945 elite who wants to make democracy a safe and stable project. And that means essentially preventing direct popular sovereignty, but creating better democracy in the form of representation and intermediaries. It would be far too glib to say this was about less democracy. In many ways, it was about creating a more modern, complex democracy. And we all know those wonderful little complicated maps that appeared in political science books after by the 1960s giving you the structure of how democracy worked with lots of sort of connecting vessels between different sorts of different areas of society. And that complexity was seen as part of its solidity. Excellent. In, in, a, in a recent uh, autobiographical essay, which you have also published just last year, titled mm -hmm. The Accidents of a European Historian, <laughs> you write uh, of a gentle spirit of innovation that characterized the writing of modern European history uh, in Oxford back uh, in the days when you were a student uh, in the 1980s. And would you perhaps say that your book is also animated by such a spirit of uh, gentle uh, innovation? And would you describe this book as, as basically being a representative of that approach to history? <laughs> I think there's a certain Oxford irony going on when I refer to a gentle spirit of innovation. You know, a gentle spirit that you could, is so gentle you can hardly see it happening at times in Oxford European history. And I have, I suppose, over the last 20 years, felt at times slightly frustrated at the slow pace of change in the writing of European history, perhaps more than the history of other areas of the world in Oxford. But, but, but what has been really great and what has been super about the last 20 years is the extent to which in Oxford and elsewhere, we have, we as historians, if we can use that awful we, have colonized the second half of the 20th century. And I certainly see this book as an attempt to try to bring a historical approach to the post-war period, which, you know, I, I finish at the end of the 60s, but, you know, quite, e quite easily this could be extended to 1989 or so. Um, and that sort of historicizing of the 20th century is super. And it seems to me that it's, you know, if I have a sort of brand in terms of how I write history, it tends to be a rather sort of socio-political history where social structures and political events, I'm trying to interweave them probably with a dose of intellectual ideas as well. And I think that, you know, there is a, there's some reason for saying that that might be something of an Oxford approach. Great. Let me perhaps uh, follow up on that uh, with another question, which is, again, a rather complex and a sensitive subject uh, these days. You use the category of uh, Western Europe throughout uh, the book. And I was wondering, how does the UK's uh, post-war history relate to that of uh, Western Europe, uh, in your view? <laughs> Well, that's a great car crash, isn't it, of recent years? There's a very easy answer to that. It's Brexit, stupid, you know, and I have written an article in Contemporary European History quite recently, which is this kind of think piece in which I try to argue that there are 100 years of Brexit in the making uh, from the sort of conferences at the end of the First World War, Versailles and so on through to the present day, by emphasising the semi-detached nature of Britain from Europe in that period, and the, the, and the brevity of moments of real engagement between Britain and Europe. And the point I try to make there 
is that it's on both sides. And one of the things I find quite interesting about the long to longer term origins of Brexit is the relative ease with which French or German decision makers in particular came around to the idea that they could have Europe without Britain. How does that develop? I mean, obviously there is responsibility on all sides, but I think that part of the explanation should be in my book in the sense that I think that the European model, West European model of democracy that I present in the book is one that is at some distance from what one might call in a cliched way, the Westminster model of democracy, particularly two parties, a single parliamentary chamber where everything happens, a rather centralized political structure where it's Westminster that matters. Those sort of features are really at some remove from the sort of democracy I'm, I'm describing everywhere else. And therefore part of the, um, part of the origins of Brexit made lie in the fact, and I think this was very obvious during the referendum campaign, that um, Europeans and British political leaders were talking about different versions of democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as for your Western Europe point, I mean, that's a very good point. And I'm very aware that the, the, the construction of a norm of Western Europe is simply wrong when applied to other areas of Europe and risks sounding as though it's some Western essentialist position. My only uh, apology for using it is I was very struck by the speed with which Western Europeans adopted the label of Western Europe after 1945, and not just for Cold War reasons. Mm -hmm. This is not Western as opposed to Eastern. This is mm -hmm. about a rather positive celebration of a Westernness, which had, had never occurred to them before 1945. Perhaps that's an exaggeration, but it certainly comes very much to the fore. And I like emphasizing this sort of territoriality of this democracy that is associated with old cities and familiar landscapes and a certain sort of human level of um, territorial organization. These are all myths. They're not true. Western Europe is a source of most of the nasty things that happened in, in the world in the 20th century. But this particular rather complacent celebration of Westernness after 1945 became a theme that I really wanted to bring to the fore. And I probably haven't exhausted it, by the way. You know, I think mm -hmm. those out there looking for subjects for doctorates, you know, think about the use, the emotionally loaded use of the concept of Westernness in Europe in the post-war decades. Mm -hmm. Right. Another thing that struck me in connection with the uh, geographical uh, area that you're covering is that you do refer to Czechoslovakia uh, every now and then uh, in the yeah. book as a kind of potential part of uh, Western Europe, uh, if you wish. But the Eastern Bloc states uh, otherwise do not play a really significant role uh, in the book. And you have just uh, explained why. But would you say that the uh, idea this, of this alternative, right, that there were the people's uh, democracies uh, in the East had some kind of impact on Western European conceptions uh, of democracy? I mean, was it really shaped also in some sense in opposition to that? Or were the two models in some sense perhaps uh, similar uh, to one another? How do, you, how do you relate to that to that complex of questions? Yeah, and a complex of questions. Let me unpack it. Uh, I apologize for putting Czechoslovakia in and not the other Eastern states, if that's how we describe them, uh, only in the sense that I wanted to explore through the case of Czechoslovakia the degree to which a, what I describe in Western Europe could have come about in other areas of Central Eastern Europe had there not been Soviet rule and so on. Um, 
I was absolutely not implying that there was a democratic potential in Western Europe, which did not exist in Central and Eastern Europe. There are many democratic potentials of different sorts in different areas of Europe. And if you've seen the book, you will know that I really, really do not glorify the sort of West European democracy that comes into existence, which seems to me to be quite limited and quite cautious. People's democracy, the term that was used in Central Eastern Europe by socialist leaders, but also by communist party leaders in Western Europe, was a very real phenomenon. They had a sense that they owned democracy. And, you know, the, the use of the term democracy by people in France and Germany and so on in the Cold War years is in some sense an act of robbery. You know, it's taking this sort of language of democracy away from the 1917 heritage and trying to relocate it in an alternative quietly counter-revolutionary uh, heritage of democracy. I'm very struck by the degree to which people in France and so on start talking about Atlantic democracy in the 1950s, you know, as if somehow they want to go back to the 18th century and to the foundation of the United States and so on uh, as a kind of alternative world of democracy because they're always trying to distance themselves from the sort of democracy that they associate with people's democracy. So to use the most obvious phrase, there is a certain dialectic going on here, isn't there, between people's democracy and liberal democracy. Though it's not that prolonged, because by the time you've got to the Budapest events of 1956, I would argue, not everybody agrees, that I think that the democratic pretensions of a Marxist Soviet model are reaching exhaustion. And therefore, in a sense, the, the West ends up as the owners of democracy, perhaps due to the own goals committed by the, by the East. That, that's fascinating because so many explanations for populism today seem to focus on uh, party dysfunction, that the parties aren't representing the people anymore. And perhaps it's because of that rather limiting um, understanding of democracy. And of course, your book <clears throat> deals with the role of parties in post-war democracy. And as you discuss there, one of the sea changes was that both Christian and socialist political parties came to accept democracy after 1945, but that socialist um, had greater difficulties offering a new definition of their purpose, uh, which was in accordance with the kind of democracy that emerged and that they participated in. So hmm. can you elaborate why you think uh, that was, why center-right party political forces, most notably Christian democratic parties, became kind of the default option uh, during this time? And why uh, did socialist parties seem to, to, to struggle so much? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And it goes to the heart, I think, of ongoing research agendas. But your, your question, Danny, in, in many ways has a sort of prior question within it, doesn't it, which is the acceptance of parties. Mm. You know, and quite a lot about politics, democratic, parliamentary, representative politics in most European states before 1940 had actually been about the avoidance of parties. Parties were at best a kind of necessary evil, at worst a kind of corrupt, corrupt faction that were trying to deliver favours for their own electorate or indeed for themselves. And I think what then happens after 1945 is quite quickly people think that this, the, the furniture of political parties, modern political parties, as they would emphasize, was somehow part of the essential structure of democracy and the best way of creating what one might call transmission belts between the people and, uh, and political power. 
and therefore parties were to be not exactly celebrated, but they were certainly to be given institutionalized roles. And you look at the Italian constitution in 48, and it very much stresses the essential role of parties to build a stable form of politics. I think perhaps we've gone a little beyond that sort of idealism now in our approach to parties, we can, with that sort of new populism, actually see the failures of parties to really act as structures of representation for interests. But at the time, people really did think that they were good. And yes, your point about socialist and Catholic or Christian Democrat parties is an important one because there's a remarkable duality to European politics in most states after 1945 between those two traditions. Partly because, you know, the division between clerical and anti-clerical still mattered. And therefore, you know, that was the fault line that was often written into people's upbringing, especially in more middle class backgrounds. And therefore, people kind of knew which side they were on, uh, which side of, the, of that divide they were on by virtue of their birth almost, and certainly by virtue of their education. So Christian Democrat parties managed to colonize a whole territory of center-right politics in Western Europe that was in some sense vacant after the experiments of authoritarian regimes in the interwar years. There are, of course, if you wish to look for it, considerable continuities between the languages of, say, the Dolphus regime in Austria and the OVP in Austria after 1945. But I don't show up those continuities in order to somehow discredit the democratic credentials of the Christian Democrats there or anywhere else. What you see is the journey that clearly uh, Christian politics, Catholic politics has been on as well. And that acceptance, it's a bit like I was saying about Raymond Aron, that perhaps democracy is not the perfect regime, but it's perhaps the best way, for example, to defend Catholic interests in a modern society and the best way to advocate Catholic interests in a modern society. Because once you had female suffrage and you had a you know, good, well-organized modern political parties, then there was a, success, a sense here that success breeds success. And we should just keep going with this Christian Democrat model. And it outstripped the socialists. Therefore, the difficulties of socialists are in some sense simply of catching up with new brands of democracy and new consumer voter-oriented versions of democracy articulated by Christian Democrats. But also, it was about the difficult heritages for socialists with certain aspects of the democratic idea, that they had always seen a certain accidentalist connection between their own activities and democracy or parliamentary regimes, and the path towards an integration of socialist aspirations within a parliamentary democratic model would only be a slow one. Mm. And that, to me, just simply reflects well on socialists. It's not some failure, as one might want to argue in a student essay of socialists. It's much more about the way in which socialists take their time to recognize perhaps the extent to which parliamentary democracy provided the most adequate and viable, practical, pragmatic means of establishing a new form of socialist organization within Western societies. Uh, encouraged, of course, by the specter of what they perceived to be of uh, communist authoritarianism in the East, but also by the, the need to compete with Christian Democrat parties, especially to catch those new electors who were always perceived to be not working class, but to be women and middle class. And that, of course, acts as a great incentive, a magnet, perhaps, for socialists to keep on innovating until they can get themselves in a position where they appeal sufficiently to those groups. Excellent, thank you. 
Again, one thing you argue uh, in the book is that after 1945, uh, democracy ceased to be a world to be imagined and actually turned into a project uh, to be built mm -hmm. uh, and that there were uh, policies intended to uh, bring about a democratic society. Now, that, of course, also meant that democracy was now a method of governance that in a sense lacked a wider purpose and generated little uh, debate. However, uh, you, you show very nicely uh, in the book that by the 1960s, there was indeed a multifaceted debate about democracy, about democracy within democracy, if you wish. Uh, and this was very much about different ways of envisioning uh, the democracy of the future. So what really changed by the 1960s to bring about this much more substantial engagement uh, with the subject? Yeah, what did change? It's a tempting, but probably rather too glib version to say that democracy generates its own dissatisfactions. But there is a clear element of that, isn't there, that the democracy that is done pretty well, pretty effectively in terms of what it delivers to voters and so on in the first 15 years or so after the Second World War then begins to dissatisfy voters simply because of its own success. It moves much more towards a kind of technocratic, rather closed structure of governance, uh, the extent to which political parties, as we've already mentioned, perhaps become rather semi-detached from elements of their social constituencies. I hate to use the word inevitable, but there is a sense that political regimes over the period of maturing perhaps acquire those rigidities that weren't immediately visible after the Second World War. But there's, so there's that. But then, to make my answer slightly more complicated, I would also emphasize the entirely new. You know, the ideological innovation, intellectual innovations that actually start talking about new forms of democracy. Perhaps they weren't always as new as people claimed, but you went back to the well, to the Paris Commune, 1870, 1970. You know, there's this new relevance to that. You went back to areas of the pre-modern world and you found in city-states and local forms of democracy, certainly in Northern Italy, a kind of celebration of the localism of democracy. But also you looked outside Europe and you looked to the decolonizing world and you thought you found there models in uh, Ghana, in Algeria, in Vietnam, or in Cuba, a sense that actually there was a kind of new, a new way, uh, a new wind of democracy that the Europeans would do well to benefit from rather than stale old Europe with its parliaments, that this is about how you create a democracy of participation. And of course, that's the social factor that's going on here which is the aspiration, the hunger, I suppose, for a certain sort of greater level of participation, which reflected social changes taking place in Europe, of which there were many, but one that quite obviously comes to mind is the, uh, the quasi-democratization of higher education, which is creating larger cohorts of young people who have been exposed to ideas and intellectual debate through their university years, even if they were studying rubbish university syllabuses, you know, and that out of that creates the sort of aspiration to be a democratic person in a new way in society. And I'm going to say all of that without mentioning the year between 1967 and 1969, which is often invoked as being somehow the catch-all explanation for what was happening. Again, as, as a follow-up question, you do end uh, your narrative in the late uh, 60s and early 70s, right? There's some yep. kind of uh, ending of a story uh, there. And may I ask you why you decided to do that? I mean, do you see this as, as some kind of cutoff uh, point? 
I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, the pra pragmatic answer is, of course, that, you know, that was quite enough. Thank you. You know, and um, to write about the 1970s, which I've personally always found quite difficult, you know, is in a sense feel, felt like another challenge, another book, another, another whole series of chapters, which would simply have made the existing book too long. So there's a certain pragmatic neatness to cutting off at that point. But I do think that uh, the idea of a democratic age, which has a slightly approximate terminus in the early 1970s, is a viable model. Um, you've got to, after all, bring in things like the Spanish and Portuguese revolutions, the events in Greece, if you go beyond the mid-1970s, and quite rightly so. And then you have immediately the kind of spectre of what may be happening in Eastern Europe ahead of 1989. And suddenly what you see there is that my world, if you want to call it that, the world I describe in the book, is no longer a viable way of approaching the history of democracy in the 1970s and 80s. So I don't know that I'm the man to write it, but I think there is a separate history to write about where democracy went next. And put glibly, I would say that what happened after that period was that democracy lost its centre of gravity and became a much more a contest between different versions of democracy, and one could elaborate upon that in terms of neoliberalism and so on. But let's not, I won't make, turn it all into a long speech. But there's a, there's a, I do think that there is a different terrain of democracy from the later 1970s onwards. And that reflects my general view that democracy needs to be understood more in terms of its discontinuities than in terms of some broad arc of democracy. Well, perhaps one, uh, area to look um, in terms of these other connections is the relationship between decolonization and democracy and of empire. Um, uh, you suggest in the book um, that uh, the end of empire uh, did not exert a truly significant impact on democracies in Western Europe. And similarly, similarly you state that the most consequential transformation of the period <clears throat> caused by immigration remained largely invisible um, at the time. So from today's point of view, these claims sound rather astonishing. And I want to ask you what might account for these curious absences and silences. And more generally, how did post-war democracy perform when it came to marginalized groups in Western Europe? And of course, this is a pressing question today. And which, and what might such perspectives from the margins reveal, reveal about Western Europe in the decades after 1945? Yeah. Those are good points, and they're they're big and serious ones. Decolonization is the kind of missing subject in the book, um, but I defend its absence because I think that in many ways it was perceived as being one of those managerial challenges that faced state authorities through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Regimes occasionally got told off if they somehow failed to do it, if they led to disasters like uh, uh, Dien Bien Phu or Belgian sort of humiliation in Congo, but it, they were they got told off for not therefore being sufficiently competent. They didn't get told off for being imperial. Uh, they didn't also didn't get told off for granting independence in that patronizing language uh, to, to formerly colonized populations. So I find it a, a, an interesting sphere and probably again, the subject of a book that remains to be written about how West European democracy constructs itself in the eyes of the colonial other. But I don't defend the absence, or, but I don't um, uh, deplore the absence of decolonization from this narrative, because what's really striking about this is the limited impact that decolonization has on West European democracy at this time. Other things 
that were happening in the colonial world are having a very big impact on it. And particularly the emergence of more multicultural societies in Europe. But I'll start, uh, you know, the starting point here has to be a very simple recognition that democracy in post-war Western Europe, perhaps unsurprisingly, was based on inequalities. The idea that somehow democracy and inequality, de democracy and equality go together is one of those pious myths we like to talk, tell each other. Yeah? Right. It seems to me that you know, democratic regimes across Europe in the 19th and 20th century have been in many ways more unequal than other regimes. I think one could get into a long argument about that, but let's just emphasize the inequality that exists within democratic regimes, particularly over gendered suffrage, obviously, and the slowness, as it's always said, of say France to enfranchise women is connected with its image of democracy. It's not in conflict with its image of democracy. Let's go forward then into the 1950s, 60s and 70s and accept the very central to this image of democracy in post-war Western Europe was its whiteness. The idea that if Europe had been racially diverse, then various traumatic and horrible events such as the Holocaust had removed certain elements of that diversity. And that indeed, perhaps with events in the Near East too, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and so on, Europe had become more self-contained and more white and that perhaps that wasn't a bad thing. It made Europe more stable. Now, with those horrible assumptions in mind, people certainly shouldn't assume that I agree with any, with 1% of what I've just said. With those assumptions in mind, then actually what you get is a distinct slowness on the part of European political leaders, but also European societies to recognize their own increasing racial diversity in the 60s and 70s. Partly because these people were thought to be, you know, guest workers or whatever. It was just a transient phrase of economic recovery after the war and so on, all those rationalizations. But also because they were stuck in that sort of mindset of Western Europe being a white society. And therefore, these uh, migrant groups didn't fit. And this, of course, could excuse in various forms all sorts of structures of discrimination, but it also reflected this deeply held belief that somehow democracy was something that was done by white people, and that therefore it was, it was only gradually in the 1970s and so on, that particularly on the left, perhaps more especially on the new left, but also on the Catholic left, that there developed much more positive visions of the sort of positive benefits that would come to democracy through making it multicultural, through, through welcoming in, it's terrible languages, aren't they? But anyway, accept it for a second, welcoming in uh, populations from other areas of the globe in order to enrich the democracy of Europe. And that is a delayed process. Indeed, we might well argue with a mind on contemporary events that it's still an incomplete process. But anyway, in, in terms of my book, I think that it's very, striking, and I could have made this probably more polemically in the book, just how uh, white the understandings of democracy are after 1945. Fascinating. As a final question, I could perhaps mm -hmm. ask, unless Danny, you would like to have a, a follow-up on, on the previous one. Uh, you know, would you say that this book on, on democracy in the early uh, post-war decades can contribute to our understanding of where we are today, where democracies uh, in Western Europe are today? You know, to my mind, one of the uh, dangers of writing about the early 
post-war period is that in a sense we get a bit, little bit nostalgic, right? We talk about yes, what definitely. we have lost, uh, you know, that, that thing, things have sort of sort of declined or disappeared uh, and they would be worth, uh, you know, trying to, to recover. I mean, do you have that sense of what kind of lines of continuity and, and rupture do you see between the early uh, post-war period and where we have arrived now some half a century uh, later? Yeah. Maybe just to follow up there as well. I mean, just given what you said about democracy and, um, you know, immigration, I mean, it, it most certainly seems as though the story that you just, the, 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 what you just said is a way of understanding um, some of the kind of populist nativist kind of sentiment today is not, uh, is in some sense, a continuation of an older form of this democracy. I mean, it's not, it's not a break or a deviance. It's actually just perhaps um, the persistence of of, of, of a post-war way of thinking. Um, uh, um, you know, I'm just trying to connect it uh, as well to Frank's question. But well, you're connecting it to, to post-war. I mean, I, what you say, Danny, I think I also have a strong sense that, you know, some of the um, most obvious models for the democracy, the more chaotic democracy that we are living through at the moment are the 19th century. You know, I'm, I want to be the first person to say 1848 is coming again. Hmm. Keep saying that. I don't know whether it will ever become true. But I, there's a sort of, there are elements when you see Macron and Merkel, where you think that actually, you know, be careful that you, you know, that you don't suddenly fall victim to a certain sort of 1848 populist uprising, you know. And, um, you know, so I think that we live in a uh, 21st century history of the present world where the 20th century is now finished where we just have to recognize that the democracy that we are um, probably more experiencing than feeling as though we are practicing at the moment is one which is unmanageable and unpredictable in its dynamics. What I don't want to do, and I think after the 6th of January and Congress, it's very easy to fall into this assumption, is to assume that democracy is besieged by its enemies. Congress was besieged by its enemies on the 6th of January, but more generally, if you go back over the last 20 years of populist politics in Western Europe in particular, then what you see is the development of new discourses of democracy that we do not like. And that, you know, is just, it gives us um, all too easy an assumption to assume that these people are not Democrats, that what's been happening with say the Rassemblement National in France or with um, the Freedom Party in Austria or any other, or even the Republicana in, in Germany is actually somehow anti-democratic. It is bad in all sorts of ways in terms of its denial of rights to minorities and all the rest of it. And I see to no one in my uh, rejection of that sort of politics. But surely it's about new discourses of democracy developing. And I'm afraid in Britain, we had a very good example of that with the 2016 referendum. In some respects, we're still, well, we will be living with that for a long time to come, yeah? So, you know, is um, the idea that what we're seeing is the end of democracy needs to be replaced by an assumption we are seeing different versions of democracy. But I think Ferenc's point about the danger of seeing the post-war era uh, rather nostalgically, is very apparent to me. Um, let me tell you a story. In Balliol, my college in Oxford, we have a tradition of one fellow giving a, a lecture each term to the other fellows, and it fell to me, uh, almost just by the absence of anybody else, to give that lecture last week. And of course, I called it the land of lost content and talked about post-war democracy. What I, of course, slightly anticipated, but it indeed proved to be true, is that everybody agreed. 
because Balliol identifies with a kind of progressive social democratic uh, model of technocratic civil servant Fabian government. And it finds in that immediate post-war period, you know, the celebratory moment. And when I started being a little critical, as you can imagine from the book, about some elements of that democratic model, I did indeed encounter quite a lot of opposition, almost offence, on the part of my colleagues, not because they had lived through it, because they're not biologically old enough to have been you know, participants in that world, but they have grown up with the idea that that world of the 1940s, 50s and 60s that they associate with things like the National Health Service in Britain and so on, and indeed with decolonization as a gift granted to all these colonized populations, is a land of lost content of which we should be proud. And therefore, as one fellow said to me slightly aggressively, my ironic approach to that period was not entirely welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, we have been uh, talking to uh, Martin Conway today, discussing his Western Europe's democratic age, a rich and substantial a monograph on the subject, which very much points to the necessity to historicize a democracy. Thank you so much, Professor Convey, for taking the time to talk to the review of democracy today. It's been a great pleasure to do so, and I very much appreciated your intelligent engagement with the book and the, made, and the way in which it's made me think again about it. If there's a second edition, it will owe something to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you, Danny, for participating in this conversation. No pleasure. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Until the next time. <laughs>